We're going to be in Judges again this morning, so get excited. Judges 21, verses 15 through 25. It'll be on the screen behind me. You can read along or you can uh, listen as the word washes over us. But um, it's not the most hopeful verses. Just going to go ahead and give a little warning. All right. You're like, why are we reading this? It's because we decided to do a series on Judges. And as we were right, as I was writing these sermon, this sermon, I'm reminded again, why did we decide to do this? But here we go. The people grieved for Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, because the Lord had made a gap in the tribe of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel is not wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives since we Israelites have taken the oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, there is an annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes to Bethel, to Shechem, and south of Lebanon. So they instructed the Benjamites saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards and each of you sees one of them to be your wife. Yeah, laughter is appropriate or, or cringe. I don't know. I, there's no, I guess, no one way to feel about this. Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, Does, do us the favor of helping them because we did not give wives for them during the war. We did not get wives. And so we will not be guilty of breaking your oath because you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This is the word of God for the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Did you feel a little weird saying thanks be to God for that? I'm not going to blame you if you do. I mean, that is actually the end of the book of Judges. We just read the last few verses. And this week we are continuing this series on the book of Judges. Last week we spent some time considering Samson. Wilson did a great job helping us think about that. Maybe we should rethink the character of Samson. Maybe he is not the pinnacle of godliness for which we should aspire in fact, we realized Samson's a really bad dude who did some really bad things. But we're glad that God does not abandon us even in our wrongdoings, that there's nothing we can do or say or be that God will abandon us for. And I give thanks for that. And as we begin today's sermon, we are continuing with some uncomfortable realities about the book of Judges. We are continuing to, to deal with some texts that if you have trouble with, that's okay. Because we think sometimes, you know, where we say a lot, the Bible is our guide and we should always have the Bible first and foremost in our hearts. But we should also know what all's in it. And there's some things in there that through the lens of a Christian, as a person who follows Jesus, we should say, we should realize these things don't fully line up. They don't jive, right? Whenever we think about what Christ has called us to be and what we see in the book of Judges, it's not always so easy to reconcile the two. But I would like to preach from this morning, the subject this morning, if you will allow me, rock bottom. I want to preach on the subject, rock bottom. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. 
We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said? Amen. Come on, y'all. I mean, I know you got masks on. I know it's been a minute for some of us because we haven't been back to church in a little while. We've been watching online. But all God's people said? Amen. It's just good to be in the house of the Lord. It's pretty outside. We got this great music. It's just, it's okay to be excited in church, I promise. Have you ever heard of the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I was in a class in college where we studied the life and the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian during the time of World War II. I wouldn't say he's my number one all-time favorite, but he's definitely my top five, right? For ranking theologians, I know you do this probably regularly. You have conversations with your coworkers. What are your top five favorite movies, your top five favorite songs, your top five favorite theologians, right? Bonhoeffer's in my top five. You know, he, um, we, we did a series on his book, Life Together, during my first year here, and it was a really good time to go through that book. He also wrote the book, Cost of Discipleship and Ethics. He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany around the time of the Second World War, and he was fiercely vocal against the Nazi party. He strongly opposed Hitler's destruction of the Jewish people and the Nazi fascism that Hitler promoted. As the church in Germany became more sympathetic to this new nationalism promoted by Hitler, Bonhoeffer criticized the church for which he belonged while he was serving two churches in London. And they rebuked him. They told him to be silent, and he wouldn't. And then he came back to Germany. And his antagonism was so destructive and so hurtful to the tradition that he belonged that they revoked his authority to teach at the University of Berlin. And so he started some underground seminaries where he could continue teaching and molding young minds and also holding congregations that did not support the Nazi party. But the war broke out, and right before it did, he decided to flee to the United States. And he was in the United States for two weeks before he realized that he had made a mistake. He decided that he had to return back to Germany and he had come to teach at Union Seminary. They invited him to the United States, and he decided that he was going to return home. Before he did, he told Reinhold Niebuhr, I will have no right to participate in the re reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. How bold is that? How brave is that? to say, I know that things could be really bad, but I'm still gonna go back. He returned to Germany and he served as a pastor and a teacher and his antagonism didn't stop. And so for that, he was arrested on April, in April of 1943. He spent 18 months in prison and then was moved to a military officer's basement. And then eventually he was moved to Flossenburg concentration camp where he spent two months of his, the final two months of his life he was found guilty of conspiracy against the government. And on April 9th, 1945, he was stripped naked and then he was hanged for his crimes. Bonhoeffer has made a major impact on Christians around the world. You might say, why are you telling this sad story? You know, his, his martyrdom has been written about by a lot of people and there's been movies made about it. And though his ending is very tragic. He might be one of the most influential Christians in the entire 21st, 20th, 21st centuries. But do you know what the actual saddest part about his story is to me? 
He was executed on April 9th, 1945. Flossenburg concentration camp was liberated on April 14th of 1945, just five days after his execution. The war had waged on for almost half a decade and all he needed was five more days. I can't help but wonder what else he would have offered the world if, it, if his execution had been planned for the next week or if they had pushed it back just five days. What else would Bonhoeffer have done if he had survived the camp? More than that, I wonder, was there somebody in the camp that recognized Bonhoeffer's righteousness? Maybe they knew him before. They had read his books. Maybe they had studied with him in school. Maybe they too were imprisoned for the resistance of the Nazi party. Or maybe they just met there. Maybe they met in this concentration camp and they recognized the holiness that this man possessed and his commitment to the gospel. And so I wonder how much greater the loss that Dietrich Bonhoeffer felt to a person like that in that moment. Someone who recognized Dietrich's holiness, someone who knew the type of man this was and what he did for the kingdom, but also knew that somehow God let this happen. This incredible vessel was stripped naked and marched to an execution. I mean, where is God in that? What kind of darkness would that have been like? How hard would it have been to keep the faith at that moment if you just watched this gentle, compassionate servant of the Lord marched off? I mean, I'm not sure there is any more real version of rock bottom than that, of hopelessness than that, of darkness than that. It makes me think of a relatively popular phrase. If you're a fan of the movie Batman Begins, or if you're just into cheesy cliches, you've probably heard the phrase, the, dark, the, the night is always darkest before the dawn. Have you heard that phrase? You like Batman? Is that where it comes from? I think about that phrase when I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Because, actually, I think about it even more for that person who might have known him. The night could have not have gotten any darker than the moment that he was taken away. And they had no idea that the dawn was only a breath away. How could they have known that five days later they had been liberated? I mean, it's as dark as it got, the dawn did come. As sad as the story was, the truly rock bottom of it, those people were liberated even though Bonhoeffer was not there to see it. In the same way, I think that phrase in reality perfectly describes the end of the book of Judges. The end of the book of Judges is dark. It's hopeless. It's an all-time low. This is Israel's rock bottom. For the entire Bible, it doesn't get any worse than this moment. These three chapters are the darkness. They're the darkness before the dawn. Judges chapters 18 through 21 are some of the final days before the monarchy of Saul and David and Solomon is established. It's a time fraught with hopeless wandering of a people committed to acts of vile and sin. The last three chapters of Judges describe how the people of Israel literally fell into like a hell on earth. The worst experiences they could go through. The last three chapters are this set of escalating disasters from rape and dismemberment to a civil war, genocide, and finally one of destruction of one of Israel's own clans. Like I said, this is graphic and I apologize for that, but this is what the Bible says. 
And they show us this tribe who's in a situation where they say this, in those days, there was no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That phrase happens a lot in the last three chapters. And it's basically this description like, we know this is bad, but there was no king, so they just did whatever they wanted. That's what the end of Judges is all about. The story we read today doesn't get much more hopeful than the chapters that lead up to it. 11 tribes of Israel gather to go to war against the tribe of Benjamin, that's also a tribe of Israel. And they decide that they are gonna attack these people for the atrocities that they have been committing, for, for the sin that they have been committing. And so right before what we read today, the Bible describes some battles that happened between the Benjamites and the rest of Israel. Ultimately, the tribes of Israel prevail, and the Bible says that they killed 25,000 men plus all the women and the children in the town of Gibeah. The Israelite people attacked them their own. However, 600 men escaped. And then after the war, the battles, the destruction, they decided that the Benjamites had had enough. They had paid their price and it was time to set them right. But they couldn't give them any of their women because they made this oath that said, we will curse be the person who lets their daughter marry a Benjamite. That's where that phrase comes from, if you ever wondered. That was a joke. <laughs> Just making sure you're awake. And so what did they do? They said, well, we can't give you any of our daughters to have as wives, so let's go kidnap some people. And that's what they did. They said, there's a festival going on where people are dancing and gallivanting. We'll just go over there. And they kidnap 600 women, and they become the wives of the Benjamites. They take them back to their land, and they establish their tribe. And the book of Judges says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Israel was supposed to be the good guys, weren't they? I mean, they were the ones who were supposed to be a blessing to all the other nations. They were the ones who were supposed to provide hope. But the book of Judges shows us that even the best people can do the worst things when left to their own devices. When people lose sight of God, there's no wonder we have some of the things in the world that we do. There's nothing about the behavior described in the last three chapters of Judges that I think that we can consider appropriate for Christian discipleship. There's nothing these people do say that we, we should emulate. This is the ultimate experience of sometimes the moral of the story is don't do what the people in the story do. Now, we can interpret judges in a number of ways, but I think there's two really common ones. The first is we can ask, how are these the chosen people of God? Why in the world is this God's chosen group? Or we can ask, and I think this is more helpful and it's where I wanna be today. What role does the entire book of Judges have in the story of God's people? And that's where I feel like our turn in the interpretive journey comes to help us understand how to reconcile this book with the God that we know and love and worship as Jesus Christ. In my opinion, and it's not my own opinion, I didn't come up with it, the age right after the Judges is the golden age of Israel. There is no better time than the time of the monarchy. In the entire Old Testament, the monarchy is the ultimate experience of the Israelites. It's the time of Saul, who was liked to begin with. Everybody loved Saul before he went crazy. David was a man after God's own heart. And Solomon was as wise as there ever was. The monarchy is the best part of the Bible for the Israelites. Because it is the time when they're not oppressed by foreign people. They're not exiled to foreign lands. They're not wishing God would come and restore them. They have a king and a leader, somebody they can look up to. 
They are winning battles and they're taking land. They are prospering and they are just at their ultimate. This is the peak of Israelite society. This is the time the prophets talk about God restoring. When they say one day God will restore and a new king will come. They're talking about it'll be just like it was when the monarchy happened. This is the time the people in Jesus's world thought he was coming to bring. They thought he was going to reestablish this old monarchy. The Old Testament has everything before the monarchy looking towards the monarchy and everything after it looking back at it. It's truly the dawn that comes after the darkness and judges is the darkness. Judges shows us just how bad things can get. Judges is the all-time low. Judges is rock bottom. So Judges functions as a story or a group of stories that help us understand, one, just how bad things can get, even for the people that are supposed to be the best. That no matter how good we think somebody is, it doesn't mean that life can't get bad, whether it's our own doing or things that are done to us. And two, it shows us that no matter how bad things get, there is still a chance for something new. Yes, Judges is dark. There was no king. The people did what they wanted, but it wasn't the end of the story. And it's not the end of the Bible. Right after Judges is the best thing since sliced bread. It is the coolest part of the story. And it comes right after this terrible experience. Judges is the fire that burns down the forests. The monarchy is the time that is the phoenix that rises out of the ashes. But why should we care? about these stories, these old stories in the Bible that don't seem to make much sense in today's day and age. What is, if the Bible has authority over our lives, so what does the book of Judges mean for us? What does it mean for you? What does this story have to say about your life and my life? If I think, I think if we're honest, in a moment of real transparency, we could say we can all relate to the narrative at work here, can't we? Who hasn't seen this pattern in their own lives? And I don't mean the disgusting content that comes from the vile acts of the Israelites. I mean, from the function of judges, from the whole story, the whole narrative of God's arching themes throughout these stories in the Bible, who has not had a moment in their life where they've hit rock bottom? Who's not had a moment in their lives where they've been making less than stellar decisions? Who hasn't had a time of chaos and disorder? The time where you can't tell up from down. I expect most of us, if not all of us, have had a moment like that or moments or season. And if you haven't, I can guarantee you one day you will because that is the human experience. We do not live in a perfect world and terrible things happen. Whether we do them ourselves or they happen to us, there is darkness. It's like sometimes things spiral out of control. Like, you know what you ought to do, but don't do it. Like Paul said, I hate that which I do. Like, you used to know which way was up, what was right, what was wrong, and then you just kind of lost your way. Have you had a moment like that? Have you had a season like that? Or have you had a time where things were just so dark and bad that it felt like there was nobody to lead you or guide you? It was like the time of the judges where there was no king and everybody just did what they saw fit because they didn't know what else to do. Are you there now? Have you been there before? Friends, the good news is this, that that is part of the story, yes, and 
there's always a possibility for God to do something new. That doesn't mean that everything will always be perfect or that things will go back to the way they were, like the people wishing for the monarchy. But after the time of the monarchy, the people went into exile and Jesus came. There is still a chance for something new. There's not one moment in your life, one season, one decision that you've made that can define you. Nothing you've done or said is the ultimate reality that God has in store for you. No matter what you've been doing, no matter where you've been, what you've been struggling through, what you failed to do or what you did that you shouldn't have, that does not define you. Whatever darkness is in your life or has been in your life doesn't have to be the end of your life. It doesn't have to be the end of your story and it doesn't have to be the end of God's story in you. What judges show us is that all of us are capable of things that we ought not do. All of us are capable of having things done to us that we shouldn't have to experience. Darkness is part of life. And that's because sin is part of life and the world is not perfect. Not until the king comes again and we reign in the eternal kingdom with him as co-heirs, side by side with the world made perfect, will we be without darkness in this world. Our role as Christians is to try to show the light, but in our darkness, it's sometimes hard to do that. And if you're in that season right now, if you've been in that season recently, let this be a reminder to you. The darkness is always darkest before the dawn. And I don't know what the dawn is. I don't know what the light is, but the Bible tells us that morning lasts for the evening, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping lasts for the evening, but joy comes in the morning. The good news is that whatever we struggle through doesn't have to have the last word, but Christ has the last word. But there's nothing that you've done or said, nothing that has happened to you or that you've done to someone else that has to define you. It can be part of your story, but then that doesn't mean it has to be the end of your story. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's ending is really sad. It's sad how he died. It's sad the time in which he died. But we're still talking about him today, which means he did not eternally die. He's part of God's everlasting story, making an impact on this world forever. I pray that's the same for me. I pray whatever darkness in my life doesn't define me, but that God can continue using me even after that season and even after my own life. I pray that for you and I pray that for our church. Don't let whatever moment or season is darkest be the only thing that defines who you are, but make room for the possibility of God doing something new. Will you pray with me?